0: This is The Waves. This This is is The the Waves. waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and getting paid. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we cannot get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Emily Peck, markets correspondent at Axios and co-host of Slate Money… And me, Phoebe Gavin,
1: a career coach and executive director of Talent and Development for Vox.com.
0: I am so excited for this conversation. Today we're here to talk about a kind of still somewhat maybe a little taboo topic, which is of course getting paid, the art of salary negotiation. Despite all the stories you may have read over the years and what a lot of people might have you think, and maybe this is controversial, I'm here to tell you we work to make money. And women, as listeners already know, tend to make less of the money because of pay discrimination, because of caregiving needs at home, because they might be in lower-paying professions, or allegedly because they didn't negotiate for more. I've written about salary negotiation and the gender pay gap for a long time. But best of all, Phoebe knows a lot about this. So I wanted to hear all your tips and advice.
1: So this is a topic I can't stop thinking about because even as we work so hard to dismantle the structural barriers and redesign the cultural dynamics, women and non-binary people still have to figure out how to get paid right here, right now in this deeply flawed system that is still very much stacked against them. And there are so many additional layers as well. I'm a Black woman from a low-income background, which adds two more layers of disadvantage as I've worked on my own career to be compensated properly for the value I created for my employers. There was no one to hold my hand or point me in the right direction as I built my professional profile, because no one in my family had that knowledge. So I had to figure it out on my own with lots of research and trial and error. And I got very, very lucky to get some help from experts outside my immediate family and my immediate social circle toward the middle of my professional career. And their support completely changed my trajectory as a professional. And I'd be nowhere close to where I am now without those allies.
0: Wow. Well, coming up, we have to get into some of that. I have many follow-ups for you, Phoebe. and We'll get into a little bit of background about the gender pay gap, give you some updates about what's happening with policy, and then really dive into the secret details of how to negotiate for what you're worth. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes too, like last week's about infertility and IVF. Phoebe. Before we get into tactics, I just wanted to like race through some myths or what I think are are myths. This isn't a myth. We know broadly women make less than men. On average, 81 cents on the dollar. And it's way less for Black women, Hispanic American women, Native American women. Basically, all women of color make even less than that 81 cents on the dollar on average. We know the difference can narrow in some industries And we know it can be explained by a lot of factors, but still at the end of the day, women in general make less than men. And then outside of those structural issues and numbers, I find I read, and you might read too, a lot of stories or hear a lot of talk about how women just don't make as much as men because they're just not as good as negotiating. They're just bad at it. They're not as confident. They're just silly women can't do it. I mean, that is really, I feel like, a message I've received over the years and people just sort of bandy about. But I don't think that's true. And there's plenty of research in the opposite direction. Is it true that women are bad at negotiating? Or, Or maybe the better question is just how can women be good at negotiating?
1: Yeah, I think when you look at the research, you see two problems. You see one where women are not negotiating or they're negotiating much less than men are. And so that's causing a problem. And then another issue is like the way that women negotiate successfully looks very different from the way that men negotiate successfully. The cultural dynamics involved with how women are received when they advocate for themselves really comes into play when we're negotiating salaries. And the way that a man needs to approach that to be successful, those tactics actually work against. A woman a lot of the time, and so it's really two pieces where women need to just bite the bullet and negotiate, but also they have to be thoughtful about the way that they do it in order to sort of navigate this bias obstacle course that they can't, they don't even know if they're actually in or not. And so there are a bunch of pieces to that, but at the end of the day, from my perspective, you cannot be successful in salary negotiation unless all of the following are true. First, you have to be worth what you're asking for. Second, you have to believe that you're worth it. And then third, you have to be able to effectively communicate that worth to employers. And that's where this sort of challenge comes into play. Women and non-binary people can really struggle with these for lots of different reasons. Some of them are on a more individual level. Some of them are structural. Some are cultural. And we can't snap our fingers and make all of these obstacles go away. We still have to operate in this environment that still has all of these obstacles and landmines. But once you know what they are, you can start to think strategically about how you wanna navigate them so you can get the best result for you in your current environment. But that really starts with believing that it is okay for you to negotiate and coming to terms with the fact that that awkwardness or anxiety or that pain of doing that awkward thing of negotiating upfront is far less painful than being underpaid for your entire career. And a lot of the people that come into my coaching environment And we're talking about negotiation, they were so focused on their anxiety and how they are perceived and I don't want to be pushy and I'm not sure. And it keeps them from even asking the question of, can you give me more than this? And so that's the first thing that we have to just like bite the bullet and get over. And the thing that happens over time is the more you negotiate, even if you don't negotiate as successfully as you would like to, even if you aren't successful at negotiating at all that initial pain of initiating that conversation and starting the negotiation becomes less of an issue. And so you will default to, okay, I need to negotiate. And then it becomes a process of improving your strategy, improving your approach so that your results improve over time. But you can't even get that if you aren't willing to do the practice.
0: You just said a lot of incredible things. I want to see if we can unpack some of them First, I think you pointed out what I was trying to get at, which is women get a bad rap as bad negotiators. But what you are saying is women are received differently and men are received differently when they try to negotiate. It's not one is good at it and one is bad at it. It's just that they're received differently. Women are perceived a certain way. Men are perceived a certain way. So with that in mind, how would you advise a woman to negotiate salary and how would that be different from how a man would have to go about doing it?
1: Well, it always starts with clarity about what's important to you. And sometimes the thing that's important to you, the number one thing that's most important to you is compensation. But sometimes it's other things. And those other things can also be negotiated for. And so that's the one thing that I want to say up front, that negotiating beyond salary is a really important skill for all people of all genders to think about and absorb because it makes a huge difference in your overall work experience over your entire professional life. And then once you have clarity about what it is that you really want as a full compensation package that's going to really facilitate the kind of lifestyle that you want to help you achieve the personal and professional and financial goals that you have for yourself. Then you want to go to the market and see, okay, what would it take for me to get that thing that I want? Do I already have that or do I need to invest in myself or reposition myself in the market so that I can achieve that? And that's another place where women can get tripped up because they can over-invest in themselves themselves because from a place of of self-doubt that, oh, I'm not good enough yet because I don't have this degree or I don't have this certification or because I haven't worked at this kind of company or I haven't had these sorts of clients or I haven't done these sorts of projects. And they will wait to negotiate until they check all of the boxes they need to check in order to feel good enough. That is definitely not what we wanna do. You wanna go to the market, talk to your friends and family, talk to uh, colleagues in the industry that you're operating in, seeing what kind of publicly available data you can get access to and really understanding separate from me, these are the things that people are finding success in that part of the market that I occupy. How many of those things do I have, and how many of those things do I think I need? Uh, once you have that knowledge, that empowers you to go into those conversations with all of the leverage. If you can say, I have these skills and this experience, I have these achievements, I'm able to drive these sorts of results, these results are valuable to the organization because they can do all of these different things, then you're going to be in a much more advantageous position to negotiate. Women are more successful in negotiating when they're negotiating on behalf of someone else versus men who are going to be more successful with negotiation when they are just advocating for themselves. And so as a woman coming into a negotiation with what we know about how women are perceived, when you are able to say, I have these things and they allow me to drive these results for the organization, for the team, for the people we serve, our customers, whatever, you are going to be more successful in negotiating that way versus I have these skills and experience and I've done all of these things. Therefore, I deserve this thing that I want.
0: So, and that kind of touches back on your note, first, make sure you are worth what you are asking for. I feel like there is a lot of work that goes into negotiation before you come in and ask for a certain salary or make that sales pitch. You have to kind of do all this work on the front end to figure out what are salaries in the industry I'm looking to work in and how much should someone like me expect to get paid. And when I I did reporting on this, everyone said, do your research, figure out how much you, you can make. And I feel like... For someone who's farther along in their career, that might be more simple. Like you can ask people you've worked with over the past decade, how much do you make? Um, but if you're just coming into a new industry or just getting started, where do you go to figure out how much money you're supposed to make and what kind of benefits to ask for outside of, of salary?
1: Oh, it's very challenging. Um, You know, companies spend tens of thousands of dollars on compensation benchmark studies from companies that have very deep, detailed knowledge about compensation. And unfortunately, you know, unless you just have a spare $10,000 that you want to spend on a compensation benchmark report, you're going to have to rely on some of um, publicly available data like Glassdoor and PayScale and those sorts of uh, websites to see what other people are reporting. But it's really important for you to see that as one data point and an overall data set that you are trying to put together. Because if you think about the two reasons why someone goes to a website like that, it is either because they are themselves underpaid or they are about to negotiate an offer and they need some information. And so that is a very uh, specific slice of the entire population of people who get paid to do the thing that you do. And so you wanna make sure that you go beyond that. And that's why it's really important to proactively build your professional network over time because that is the thing that empowers you you to knock on someone's digital door and say, Hey, you know, I'm looking to you know, have a better understanding of where I sit in the market. I'd love to have a conversation with you about, you know, what you think is appropriate in terms of compensation in our field. That is not possible if you don't have a network and you can't develop a network overnight. So if you haven't done anything in the last year to develop your professional network and then tomorrow you start looking for a job, it's going to be really hard for you to have the information necessary to understand what your current set of skills and experience is worth in the market.
0: And can you talk about from the personal angle, how you developed your own network? Because people always say, develop your network, you have to network. And it's like, well, what do you mean? I know I used to feel like uncomfortable asking people to lunch. And is that even possible anymore? And cold calling people. And I mean, just, yeah, I would love to hear how you did it and how other people can do it
1: this became clear to me really early on in my career the importance of a network so i'm a veteran i joined the military out of college because i came from a low income background couldn't afford college so gambling with my life is the way that poor people afford college in the united states and so um when i came out my you know my deployment was you know not the easiest. And when I came out, I was dealing with some pretty serious mental challenges. And I just so happened to fall into volunteering with a veterans nonprofit that actually had like a pretty robust employment assistance program for veterans. And because I was, you know, a volunteer and I was interacting with the staff all the time, I was really absorbing tons and tons and tons of knowledge from these veterans who were three, five, 10 years out from separation and had all of this information about how to be successful as professionals. Because again, I came from a low income background. My parents weren't able to teach me about you know, what it meant to be a white collar professional, even though that was the, the zone that I was starting to enter. And so once I realized what was happening, I realized that I needed to make a point of connecting with people regularly. Because if that accident hadn't happened, if I hadn't randomly received a phone call from this nonprofit asking for volunteers, I have no idea where I would be from a professional standpoint. And so I actually just, it's part of my routine. Every week, either I have someone who comes up on my calendar as like someone to follow up with, or I actually set aside 15 minutes to send some emails or just do some searching on LinkedIn or do something. So then I'm reaching out to someone and refreshing, deepening, activating, informing my network. And that's been a practice that I have developed over time to a point where it's habitual, basically since maybe 10 years at this point. And so I have a very robust professional network that brings me opportunities. I don't have to work so hard to find them. And um, it's really easy for me to get information about things because I know so many people and those connections are very deep. Ultimately, a lot of people said no. A lot of people blew me off. A lot of people ghosted me. A lot of people you know, had negative responses. But at the end of the day, enough people said yes uh, for a long enough period of time that I am now light years ahead of where I ever expected to be as a professional. And so part of it is just being okay with the fact that you have to roll the dice. And sometimes it's gonna come up snake eyes, sometimes it's gonna come up whatever the opposite of that is. I don't gamble, I don't know.
0: So it's really like you're saying before you get into the negotiation over pay, there are many steps you have to take so that you're set up to succeed in the negotiation. So We've basically spent the first half talking about those things. You have to set up your network. You have to do your research. You have to have your network in place to even find out about good opportunities sometimes. In the next segment, I guess, we'll get into more about just like how to get the money.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Emily and myself on another topic, check out the Waves Plus segment, Is This Feminist?, where today we're going to be debating whether International Women's Day is feminist.
0: And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, like Slate Money, and bonus content of shows like this one also. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the Waves Plus. All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
0: For the times earlier this year, or I guess late last year, I wrote about how to deal with one specific question that comes up a lot these days in job interviews. And the question is very simply, recruiters or hiring managers will ask you, how much do you want to make? (laughs) And this is sort of like a new thing um, from when I was starting out anyway. Back when I was starting out, hiring managers would say, how much are you making? And then you'd have to tell them your current salary. And this would basically lock anyone who is underpaid into that lower salary, you know, for their whole lives. So people made a big stink about this, a lot of feminists and activists, and they got results, especially since um, Me Too kind of took off 16 states have banned employers from even asking for your salary history now. So that's why this question is the way people kind of do it now. How much do you want to make? And actually, there's another policy in progress now, which is going to be very interesting, which takes effect in May. The New York City employers are going to have to tell you how much they pay and post salary ranges, which adds like a next level of fraud to the whole negotiation. So when I was doing this reporting, I was told if someone asks you how much you wanna make and you haven't done all that research that Phoebe already told you to do, which you should do, then you basically just do whatever you can not to answer the question. And then try and turn the question around. So you say, it's early in the process. I'm still getting to know this role um, and doing my research. If you're trying to fit into a certain range, that would be really helpful to know. So try and get the employer to tell you. On the other hand, if you have done the research, you can say something like, based on all the research I've done and the conversations I've had, I think this role should probably pay around this much money um, plus bonus and other benefits. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Phoebe, you're the expert.
1: With my clients, I definitely recommend a very succinct and direct approach. Thank you for the question. Unfortunately, I don't have enough information to answer it just yet. However, I'd love to hear if you have a budget already set for this role. That's it. And then silence. (laughs) That that silence at the end is the hardest part. Um, Strategic silence is really important in negotiations. And so when you ask that hard question of what's your budget, shut your mouth. Shh. No, nothing else after that. And there are going to be some folks who respond to that by actually giving the budget. There are going to be some folks who respond to that by wavering and waffling and not really wanting to give you an answer. Like I have like an entire flowchart that I recommend to folks based on how someone responds to that question. Sometimes you'll get that they don't know. And there are some legitimate reasons why the person that you might, might be speaking to might not know. Sometimes a headcount will get approved, but the budget is actually really flexible because they're not 100% sure what is on the other side of the market. Um, and so that can be a situation where they legitimately don't have a set budget for the role. They might say, I don't know, because that information isn't shared with that particular individual for whatever reason. Sometimes companies have uh, particular policies around the way that they discuss compensation with candidates in the hiring process. There are definitely um, supervising uh, managers who don't know how much their people get ma- paid. And so I don't know isn't necessarily a giant red flag. Um, and there are a lot of ways that I recommend to respond to that, depending on what flavor of I don't know it is. The one that is a real red flag where I recommend that clients really pay attention and think hard about whether they really want that opportunity is if the recruiter refuses to move you forward in the process unless you give them salary expectations. That's a situation where you just have to ask yourself the hard question of, you know, what does this say about this employer? And do I want to work for someone that has that sort of trait And when you get that vibe from the recruiter, even if it isn't that they're saying that explicitly, my recommendation is to say, it sounds like you wouldn't be able to move me forward in the process unless I shared my private financial information with you. Am I reading that correctly or am I misunderstanding? Does that work? And it's like, that sounds so baller. Like, oh my gosh, how can I say that? But again, we are talking about a a recruiter that is positioning that workplace as being explicit. If they are not willing to talk to you about what you are bringing to the table unless you give them your salary expectations, that says a lot about who they are. And so it's gonna be going that hard to that sort of response, which itself is that that recruiter is coming at you really hard. That gives that recruiter the opportunity to realize what they're doing and make a decision. If they are um, representing the company in a way that doesn't actually make sense, isn't actually aligned, they're gonna have to make a choice about whether they're going to move you forward or not. And if the answer to that question is legitimately like, no, we're not going to move you forward unless you give us this information, then that's really great information for you as the candidate. Like, do I want to work for these people?
0: I mean, it's really astounding to me that not only will they not tell you what their range is, they will not move forward until they know yours. It shows how imbalanced the process truly is, right? I mean, you have all the power.
1: Now, I don't want to characterize it like that's super common because I wouldn't say that it is super common, but it does happen. And when it does happen, the thing that I never want my clients to do is to think, oh my God, I need this job and just answer the question because you don't need that job in particular. You need a job, but you don't necessarily need that job. And you really don't need that job if they're going to treat you poorly. And this is an indication, the way that this recruiter is behaving, if they're behaving that way, this is an indication that that's going to be a workplace that treats you poorly. And so it kind of doesn't matter if they're like turned off, that you come back at them, like accusing them of demanding private financial information, because first they are. And second, like if they think that's bad and they don't want to move forward with you, that's actually a bullet dodge. That's great.
0: Saying how much you want to make is so fraught. It's so... It's so risky. You don't want to leave money on the table for yourself. You know, there are employers out there. I've heard stories. They hear someone says, I want to make $50,000 a year. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. And they will take advantage of you. Their budget will be twice that. And they'll say, great. Oh, 50. We can give you 60. And they've, you know, excited And they about budgeted it. 80. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, and as many hiring managers who told me they don't do things like that, they would never. There were a lot of people who told me that happens often. So I'm just reemphasizing how important that early research is and how delicate it is too. Because on the other hand, if you ask for too much, then they're going to write you off. Like how do you land on a number? Well,
1: that number needs to depend on, this is, I mean, at least the way that I coach my clients is that your number should be this mix of like what you want for yourself in your life and what the market is telling you. Your current set of skills can command in the market. It should be a mix of those two. And you get more flexibility around this as you advance in your career, as you specialize, as you have more and more proven results. You can be a lot more swaggy in a negotiation than you can when you're early in your career and maybe you don't have as much proven results. At the end of the day, Every business, their top three um, expenses when they look at the budget are generally going to be payroll, rent, and cost of goods. And payroll is going to be the biggest one. But every business has to kind of make a balance because if they pay too little for talent, then they're going to get all of the worst people and they're not going to be able to drive whatever business results they're trying to drive. But if they pay too much for talent, then they're not going to be able to get a return on that investment and the company will become insolvent. So they have to throw this really delicate balance where they are budgeting for the best talent that they can afford based on their balance sheet and where they sit in the labor market. But- Also, not going overboard and busting the budget for every single uh, person who comes along so that they don't move into this place where the company becomes insolvent. For certain types of companies, certain types of roles, certain skill sets, it's worth it to break the budget. Um, You know, what you pay that person to get that incredible top of market talent into the door, they are going to return top of market results. And so that's why that early sort of career strategy and really that research comes into play because if you know what top of market talent looks like, what kinds of ta- um, what kinds of results top of market talent drives, you can make a decision about do I want to do the work of developing my resume, developing my skill set so that I can compete at the top of the market. And once you do that work, then you can show up to these negotiations and you can say, well, oh, okay, well, it sounds like you've budgeted, you know, 80 to 90,000. Thank you for sharing that with me. Unfortunately, that's a little bit lower than I would, uh, feel comfortable saying, you know, yes to and, uh, you know, excited to say yes to. But I'm also confident about the sorts of results that I can drive. And I'm really interested in learning more about the company. And so I'm happy to continue having this conversation with the understanding that, um, without, uh, a pretty robust benefits package, it would be challenging for me to say yes to an offer in that range.
0: It's funny you mentioned robust benefits package. We only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to talk about, we talk so much about numbers and salary negotiation, but there are things besides salary that you can negotiate for. The biggest thing I've been paying attention to has been stock options. That's for a privileged set of workers, of course. Um, But there are other things. And then there are things that people think they can negotiate for that That you can't. I just got a new job and I tried to negotiate for extra vacation. And they were like, no one gets extra vacation. We have to have a standard policy. That's not a thing. It's like negotiating for better health insurance. Everyone has the same health insurance. So, can you talk a, a bit about negotiating outside of just the straight salary and how you think about it?
1: So there is a big, long list of things that you can negotiate outside of salary. (laughs) And it really depends on your industry. And it really depends on the company. But the one that you can almost always negotiate that I definitely recommend um, looking at if if the company can't move on or won't move on salary is title. If you are able to shift your title so that it positions you better in the market, even if you're doing the same types of work for the exact same pay, that can set you up for the next move or the move after that to be bigger than it would have been if you were at that original title. Now, that's not to say that you should negotiate title every single time you don't want to negotiate title to the point where your title has nothing to do with what you do or that it creates an inaccurate expectation of what you do. Um, But if it's, you know, one step up, if they put senior in front of it or (laughs) something like that to make it a title that has a bit more heft in the market, that can really set you up for success. And that was really important in my career. Actually, a few jobs ago, I came into uh, a position where my title was a step down from all of the peer leaders that I was working with on a regular basis. I didn't actually, Know that that was the case going into the job. So I didn't negotiate it in the offer stage. But once I got into the role and I realized I'm in all the same meetings with people who have our, you know, senior level, have senior manager level titles, and I'm just a manager title, that's weird. I'm doing the same work. I have the same number of people who are reporting to me. That's weird. That definitely needs to change. Now, I want to be clear that there definitely wasn't a discrimination thing in play with that particular um, employer. It really was about the way that the function that I performed was perceived in the company overall. And that was something that needed to change too. (laughs) And so as I got into the role, I negotiated, I tried to negotiate a salary bump and and a um, title. We weren't able to get the salary, but we were able to get the title bump. And that title bump set me up to get a director title at the next job. And I don't think I would have been able to get that director title at that next job if I hadn't had the senior manager title at the one before it. And so even though I didn't get a raise, if I compare that, That senior manager salary, even though it was a manager salary, to that director salary, it's almost double. And so did I get more from that title bump? Yeah. Even though I didn't get more in terms of that compensation for that particular role.
0: That is a great story. And I think really goes to show it's something that doesn't cost your employer anything. So that's a sell and a win for them, bottom line. And a win for you financially down the road, actually, because you can get those better positions with the better title, I think that's just brilliant. Before we head out, we'll do our recommendations. Phoebe, what are you loving right now? There are two things that I'm loving right now.
1: The first is wearing luxury fragrances at home when you are the only one who is going to smell you. This is something that I got really into sort of toward the beginning of the pandemic when I was trying to figure out just like ways to make myself feel good. And, you know, I wasn't spending any money on all any of the other sort of beauties, personal care things that I normally would. You know, no manicures, no facials, no hair appointments, like none of those things were happening. And so I bought a extremely expensive designer fragrance. (laughs) And I can't tell you how good it made me feel to just like spritz that and just enjoy that fragrance and like be at home doing my thing, smelling myself, feeling good. (laughs) And it was real expensive, like really, really expensive.
0: You You won't disclose?
1: I mean, okay, I will. So it was... Nuit de Fou, I'm not French. I said that wrong. I know I said that wrong by Louis Vuitton. It was real, real expensive. (laughs) But a hundred mil perfume bottle usually lasts like a year, even if you wear it every day. And the more expensive ones actually tend to last longer than that on the skin. So they don't need to be replaced as often. They don't need to be reapplied as often. So a really high quality, well-crafted fragrance is going to last like 18 months or longer. And the bottles themselves are gorgeous to look at. So... For the amount of money that I probably would have spent on manicures in a year, I bought one bottle of fragrance that at this point I still have some and it's been two and a half years and every day it makes me so happy. It smells like a sexy fireplace. (laughs)
0: fireplace. I love that so much. And now, of course, I want to buy this perfume. So thank you. (laughs) Um, Wow, that's really good. I'm sure everyone's going to want to run out and buy this, or at least spritz it for free. Don't run out and buy
1: it. Just like go in the store and pretend you're going to buy something and then ask for a fragrance sample. (laughs) That's what you should do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and you have a a second recommendation too.
1: Oh, yes. My second recommendation is Gardener's World, which is a UK TV show that's actually been running since 1968. It's just about gardening and gardens. And I promise you, there is not a cozier show on the planet. It is an absolute blanket of a TV show just like gorgeous gardens and and plant science and ideas for everyday people even people who don't garden to live more sustainably and then lots of lovely british accents and so it's just so cozy and i save it up for when i have a bad day and it's like all right it's time for my gardener's world blanket
0: (laughs) you're out there smelling good watching gardener's world smelling like flowers watching flowers (laughs) It sounds like a great companion for like British baking show of people like that. Is it kind of like? So uh,
1: Bake Off I find to be
0: like low key stressful. Like I enjoy
1: watching it, but it's not like a relaxing experience because I'm very invested in the people and like all of the drama. And they have those like music cues that just like give you all the stress and you know that a cake (laughs) is about to fall over gardener's world is just cozy like the opening theme it's oh yes blankets i'm so cozy already and then just
0: an hour of flowers it's wonderful well i don't know if my recommendation can measure up but my recommendation is um these precious days by Anne patchett it's a book of essays by Anne patchett who is i think she's a 56 year old writer novelist genius my idol I got really into her. I read, I think it's called her novel, The Dutch House. Um, And then I read these essays. And she, she just talks about all different kinds of things. In one essay called There Are No Children Here, she talks about how she met and married and fell in love with her husband, and who's considerably older than her, and they have no children, and they have a very full life. And she has this one story she tells about... A radio host who who said to her, I, I wrote down the quote here, your husband is considerably older than you are. Chances are you'll be alone at the end of your life. Don't you worry about that? Which, how dare you? And so Anne Patchett had a great response, um, which she recounts. And she said, you know, I don't mind talking about this, but would you ask Jonathan Franzen the same question? He doesn't have children. And um, when the interview aired... That was all cut out. It wasn't even in there. Of course, like the gossipy me is like, who who was the radio it's a talk show interview? And I have a theory about who it is. So you could write it <laughs> to the waves and share your theories. I'd be interested to hear. She has um, a great essay about her three fathers because her parents got divorced and her mother remarried twice. So she wound up having three fathers. And they're all extremely – Patch is just very descriptive and detailed in her writing. And she writes about each father. And then um, she's at a wedding and they're all three of them there, the three fathers. So then they take a picture all together. And one of them says to the other, she's going to write about this, isn't she? And then at the end of the essay, there's the (laughs) picture is right there. And it's just like, it's so good. And that just set me off on just reading all of Anne Patchett. So I, I recommend doing that also if you have time.
1: As a child for each by choice person, I definitely need to track this author down and read everything. Yeah,
0: Oh, she's wonderful and delightful. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by
1: Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director with June Thomas, providing oversight and moral support.
0: And we'd love to hear from you, especially with your guesses about who that radio host was. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The
1: Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time, same place.